Acts chapter 13, verses 44 through 52. We went to Disney World with my family a few years ago with my parents and my sister and her family. And part of the reason that trip was so great is because my sister was in charge of the schedule and she's like an oldest kid and does great at everything and is a type A and loves to schedule and plan and things. And so she planned the, the whole trip down to the smallest detail. And so what we got to do was just go wherever Beth told us to go and go when she told us to go there, which, which I love in a situation like that. Because it's, it's really nice when somebody has a plan. Well, God always has a plan. Nothing he ever does is haphazard. Nothing he ever does is, is arbitrary. He, he has a plan, and he has a plan for the central character in our passage. And the central character in this passage is his word. So the word of the Lord, the word of God, that's the center of this passage, and God has a plan for it. Now, let's see how we can say that. How do we know that the word of God is the central character of this passage? Well, right off the bat, a, a good principle to help you understand and study your Bible better is when you're reading a passage, a lot of times one thing that you're looking for is are there ideas or words that are repeated throughout? Because if you see that, then you understand, okay, the author through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's trying to clue me in on the importance of this idea, the importance of this word. That'll oftentimes let you know where, where the emphasis is. What's the main idea? What's the main character? Well, in this passage, Acts 13, 44 through 52, the phrase, the word of God or the word of the Lord, it shows up five times in, in these nine verses. So in verse 44, people hear the word, uh, hear the word of the Lord, rather. Uh, in verse 46, the word is spoken. In verse 46, the word is thrust aside. In verse 48, the word is glorified. And in verse 49, the word is spreading. So the central character of our passage is God's word. And, and the main idea of the passage is that God has a plan for that word. God has a plan for his word. So hear the word of the Lord. Acts 13, 44 through 52. The next Sabbath, almost a whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men in the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Well, to, to kind of give us a roadmap where we're going, and this is on the, the back of the bulletin, we're going to be given at least three main applications from this passage. There's, there's at least three things we should walk away with, understanding the Lord is, is telling us to do these things, believe these things through this passage of Scripture. And so the first application is gather to hear the word. That's the first thing the Lord's going to instruct us to do, gather to hear the word. Second, never disregard the word. And finally, trust God's plan for the word. So, so like we pointed out, the main character in this passage is the word of God. Look at where Luke begins, how he sets it up. Verse 44, the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. 
So remember, Paul and Barnabas are traveling through this area, and they're preaching the gospel. They're missionaries. So if they went to a town that had a synagogue, which is where the Jews would gather on the Sabbath on Saturday to hear the word of God proclaimed, that's where they would go. They would go there to preach the gospel to the people. And they had done this the previous week. And and the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles, Gentiles who were interested in, in the God of Israel, they begged them to come back and preach again. They'd ask Paul and Barnabas, please come back and, and tell us more about the word. So the next week, the following Saturday, when the Jews were together, Paul and Barnabas came to preach again. And we're told almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. And that's the appropriate response, right? That's the appropriate response when God's word is bring, being proclaimed is, is to come and gather to hear it. And this is our first instruction this morning, gather to hear the word gather to hear the word. We've seen it all throughout Acts, but but it's God's word that does the work of saving sinners. And it's God's work that does uh, God's word that does the work of growing Christians to look more like Christ. So, that's that's the question for us. Do you gather to hear the word? Do I gather to hear the word? Do, do you take time out of your day to pursue Bible reading? Is that something that you do as a believer? Have, have you ever considered things you can pursue to understand the Bible better? So maybe listening to, to sermons on your drive to work or, or a podcast where folks help explain the theology of the Bible. You know, do you pursue those things to help you understand the Bible better? Do you gather with your fellow believers to hear the word preached on, on Sunday mornings? And if you're not gathering to hear the word, what's keeping you from it, right? So, so what is it that's more valuable to you than encountering the life-changing word of the God of the universe? Well, in the estimation of the folks at the beginning of our passage, there wasn't anything more important. They're gathering to hear the word, and that's the first instruction for us, gather to hear the word. But as we've seen time and time again in the book of Acts, everybody isn't excited about hearing the word, right? It's, it's almost the whole city that comes. It's not, it's not the whole city, but then there's also people that come, but it's not to hear the word of the Lord. It's, it's to stir up opposition, verse 45. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. So remember, the vast majority of the Jewish people rejected Christ. The vast majority weren't interested in the message of the gospel. And and it's not just that they didn't accept it. The idea of a crucified Savior seemed crazy to them. So this is 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23. Paul says, But we, cre- we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block. To Jews, but but it wasn't just that, that individual Jews thought, okay, I'm, I'm not accepting that message, so I'm not interested in this. It wasn't just that; it went past that. They also got mad when others accepted it, or when it was bo- being proclaimed to other Jews. And Paul tells us that was at the heart of this anger. He says, "But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy." So so they were jealous. They were jealous of these ministers of the gospel who are preaching a message that they think is crazy. They're, they're jealous that it's attracting all of this attention. And that jealousy in their hearts, it produces bad actions in their life. But see, that's what jealousy does. Jealousy always does that. So, so we've talked about it before that jealousy is a gateway sin. Jealousy is a sin that leads to lots of other sins. Listen to James chapter 3, verse 16. He says, For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. So it's this sin that produces lots of other sins. 
So don't overlook jealousy in your heart. It's easy to overlook it and say, ah, it's not that big of a deal, right? In particular, because other people don't know about it. Oftentimes, not, not unless you tell them. It's easy to overlook, but, but don't do it. Don't overlook jealousy in your heart. It will produce all sorts of other sins if left unchecked. So as Christians, we, we want to locate it in our hearts. We, we want to confess it to God and, and ask his forgiveness. You know, there's, um, you probably smelled it when you came in this morning. You probably smelled it more, I think, last Sunday. I don't know. Who knows? Maybe it's as bad as it was. There's a, there's a mouse or something that's down there in the ductwork that is dead, right? Sorry. Hopefully it'll be gone soon. But there's that small thing. It's hidden. We don't know where it is. We would have never known it was even there, but it produces a lot of bad things, doesn't it? <laughs> it works its way throughout the entire building. And you know that. We live in Maine. It's kind of rural. Mice probably get in your house and die in your walls. A tiny little thing produces all sorts of bad things and can fill up the space. That's what jealousy does. It seems like a small thing. It's hidden. It's easy to overlook, easy to sweep aside. It will produce all sorts of havoc because that's what it does. So we want to locate it. We want to confess it to God. We want to ask his forgiveness. We, we want to ask him to, to help us put that sin to death. Further than that, you, you want to confess it to other believers so they can encourage you to turn from jealousy, so they can pray for you. See, the folks in our pastors, they aren't believers, so they're, they're a slave to their jealousy. And look at where it leads. End of verse 45. They began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. So they're telling the people, hey, these Christian leaders, they don't know what they're talking about. So the Jews are trying to contradict Paul and Barnabas, their, their teaching. They're saying, you shouldn't trust these guys. But it gets even more aggressive than that. Look at what the Jews end up doing at the tail end of our passage, verse 50. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and drove them out of their district. So they worked to get some of the important people in town upset, no doubt by saying bad things about Paul and Barnabas. And then they get this big group to run them out of town. They drove them out of the district, we're told. Now, now it'd be tempting to think that, that the one that the Jews are opposing is, is Paul and Barnabas, right? That they're the ones that are really getting pushed back on. But that's not true, at least not at the core of it. Look at part of the way these guys react to the opposition from the Jews. Look at what Paul and Barnabas say, verse 46. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. So Paul doesn't say, Since you thrust me aside, or since you thrust me and Barnabas aside. No, he says, You thrust the word of God aside. And see, that's, that's because they're not really opposing Paul and Barnabas, not at the heart of it. No, the one they're really opposing is the word of God. And the picture Paul and Barnabas give is accurate. They are thrusting it aside. They're pushing it aside. And this is our second main point this morning. Never disregard the word. Never disregard the word. So Paul and Barnabas had been preaching God's word about the gospel in particular, but the Jews disregarded it, right? They, they pushed it aside. Now, this isn't unexpected. Paul himself, he knows that for the non-Christian, for the person who doesn't have the Holy Spirit, they're, they're sort of locked and loaded. They're spring-loaded to reject the word of the Lord. This is what we're told, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. Paul says, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. And the Jews in our passage, they, they certainly treat God's word as foolish. That's why they're brushing it aside. 
And, and if you're here and you're not a Christian or, or you don't know what you think about Jesus, be sure that you don't do the same thing. So, so what you're hearing right now, this, this is the proclamation, the preaching of God's word. Don't disregard God's word. In, in our next point, we're going to hear more about Christ, more about Jesus, who he is, what he's done to save sinners. Pay attention but because the good news about Christ, it's the difference between life and death. But you can't merely pay attention. You also need to accept the truth of God's word. So don't disregard it. But see, for, for us as Christians, we're sometimes tempted to do just that. We're tempted to disregard God's word. Now, now the Christian, praise God, will never disregard God's word top to bottom, right? You, you never get to completely turn away from the gospel if, if you're a real Christian and have the Holy Spirit. But haven't you seen yourself disregard parts of God's word, at least for a season? Haven't you found that an easy thing to do? So, so maybe it's Jesus' teaching to love your enemies and pray for them. Maybe you read that when you actually have, it's easy in the abstract. Oh, if I had an enemy someday, this is what I should do. Great, got it. But in the particulars, when you actually have somebody who wants bad for you and has made themselves your enemy, and then you read that passage, love your enemies, pray for those who hurt you, maybe something like that, you read it and you think, there is no way I can do that. <laughs> and, and I'm not going to do that. It seems unattainable. I'm not interested in that. I'm, I'm not going to pursue that. So you disregard it. Or maybe it's God's word about not loving money and being generous with your resources, where we just find all sorts of reasons to say, no, that's not really for me. I'm not going to worry about that one. I'm going to disregard it. Or maybe it's an opinion you hold about uh, about a homosexual romantic relationship, where you just think, yeah, I hear what God's word says, but but I know people in these situations, and and the the draw there is just too much for me emotionally. So so I'm just going to ignore what God's word says here. I'm, I'm just not going to agree with the Bible on this point. You think of other times. There's many times we're tempted to disregard God's word, but don't do it. Don't disregard God's word. This is Psalm chapter 1, verse 1. It's the very beginning of the Psalms. That's significant. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, the word of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. So what he's telling us is order, order your life, order your way of thinking according to God's word. And it's good to be reminded when we disregard God's word, bad things will always happen. Maybe not outwardly, maybe not according to the world, the way that they size up what's good and bad. But in reality, bad things will always happen. Look at verse 46. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. So by disregarding God's word, it's made clear to these Jews, the apostles are taking the gospel elsewhere. And Paul makes it clear, if you guys don't stop disregarding the word, you're going to lose eternal life. Those are the stakes. That's the thing that's held out there. And that's the thing that they will lose with this kind of rejection. So pray you'd be able to see it clearly and quickly when you're disregarding God's word. Confess that to other brothers and sisters in Christ so they can help you keep an eye out in those areas for accepting God's word. To use the language of of our confession of faith, our fellow brothers and sisters, they, they can help us that we're believing all the Bible teaches, obeying all that the Bible commands, and trusting all that the Bible promises. We don't, want to, we don't want to disregard the word the way that the non-believers in our passage are, are thrusting it aside. 
But, but even this sin in our passage, even the folks that are disregarding the word, even this is going to be used by God to do good. So the Jewish rejection of the gospel, it was part of God's plan all along. Look again at what Paul says in verse 46. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. So God's word was rejected by the Jews by and large, but God designed it to happen that way. That was part of his plan. And this is our final point this morning. Trust God's plan for the word. Trust God's plan for the word. We're tempted to think if somebody rejects God's word about Christ, that that is only and completely a bad thing. That there's nothing good about it. That it's completely a bad thing. But we see in our passage this morning, that's, that's not true. So, so when the Jews here in our passage, they're thrusting the word aside, Paul and Barnabas could have been discouraged, but, but they weren't. Look again at why that is. Verse 46 again, and Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly saying, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. So God's design for salvation history was that the gospel would be preached first to the Jews, that then when they largely rejected it, it would then go to the Gentiles. So again, it starts with the Jews. Listen to the instruction Jesus gave his disciples back in Matthew chapter 10, verse 5. He says, Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So the gospel starts by going to the Jews. We saw it at the beginning of the book of Acts. The commission Jesus gives there, Acts chapter 1, verse 8. He says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So he's saying, okay, it starts in Jerusalem. It starts with the Jews, and then it goes out from there. Or the way Paul says it in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, he says, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and then also to the Greek or Gentile or non-Jew so God's design was for the gospel of Christ to be preached to the Israelites first, but that was never the whole plan. That was never the whole plan. The second part was that the gospel would, would then begin to be preached to the non-Jewish world as well. Paul and Barnabas, they quote Isaiah 49. That's a passage that Robin read earlier. They quote it down in verse 47, where it says, For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, and this is from Isaiah 49, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. So the plan was never for God to simply have one ethnic group of people. It was always for, uh, for him to draw more people to himself. In fact, all the way back in Genesis 12, when he makes his promise to Abraham, Father Abraham, the beginning of the nation of Israel, he tells Abraham, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And God reminded Isaiah about this part of his plan. We read it again in verse 47. For so the Lord has commanded us saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. So see God's people, they were supposed to serve as a light for the nations. Um, we lose power at our house a decent amount because we're not in fancy Holden town. Fan fancy Holden town, they get that power back on quick. Eddington will be fine, they say. Those folks will be fine. It's okay. We lose light a decent amount. If it happens at night, 
it's pitch black. So what we've learned is if we lose power, we just tell the kids, freeze. And I know where the flashlight is, and I will go and get the flashlight. But there are toys everywhere. We have stairs that go down to a basement. There's corners of furniture, and we have a lot of little kids. So we just say, freeze, so that I can go and find the flashlight and and then shine the light. Our, Our kids can't see, and it's dangerous for them to walk around without being able to see. Well, see, it's, just, it's the same idea here. So the people in our world that don't know Jesus, they're walking around in danger. They're walking around in the dark, and they're right next to the basement stairs, and they have, they have no idea. In fact, t- talking to the Jews, Paul and Barnabas tell them what the chief danger is at the end of verse 46. We already read it. But they say, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Eternal life, it's only available through Christ alone, through trust alone in Christ alone. But the non-believers around you, they're blind to that danger. So spiritually, they, they can't see where they're going. And it's like they're walking toward the steps. They don't even know it. But that's where we're supposed to come in as Christians. So God designed the Christian life for us to be like a bunch of flashlights that are showing people the way away from judgment and toward eternal life and toward the presence of God through Christ. So as members of this church, are we doing that? Are we taking those opportunities? Are we taking those opportunities to, to point the flashlight of the gospel toward our coworkers and our neighbors and our friends and our family members? Do, do we care that they're headed for spiritual danger? That'd be a good thing to pray for, that God would grow that desire in us to point the gospel like a light in those ways. He, he designed it for his people to be like a light, like we're told here for, for non-believers. And the message for Isaiah was that God's people were supposed to be a light for non-Jews. So again, 47, he says, For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. But what Paul and Barnabas tell their audience here and, and us this morning is that the gospel going out to the Gentiles is actually connected to the Jewish rejection of the gospel. So it's not that these are two separate tracks, No, they're connected. One is connected to the other. Look again at the middle of verse 46. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves worthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. So the Jews' rejection of the gospel is the catalyst for Paul and Barnabas taking it to the Gentiles. Since you thrust it aside, we are turning to the Gentiles. Paul says the same thing later on in Acts to a group of Jews in Acts chapter 18, verse 6. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And this is a good reminder that God is sovereign. He's in control of everything. It would have looked pretty bleak to the apostles when all of these Israelites, time after time, the majority of them are completely rejecting Christ. But see, God was using that rejection for a bigger purpose. He was using that rejection to send these preachers out away from Jerusalem so so they could take the gospel to the rest of the world. That's what he was doing with his word. It it was deflecting off the hard hearts of the Israelites and then being shot out to the ends of the earth. So so it it was just like pool. You know, a a good pool player is is taking that initial shot, but but oftentimes it's it's not where that cue ball is going that he's most interested in. No, it's going to hit something, and that's going to bounce off something, and then that's going to get where he wants it to go. Well, that's what God had decided to do from from the beginning of all time when it comes to the gospel. It would be shot first at the Jews, 
But then out of their broad rejection, it would ricochet out to the rest of the world. That's what Paul is telling us here. God, God always knows exactly what he's doing. Praise the Lord, right? We oftentimes don't know what the Lord is doing. He always knows what he's doing. So trust God's plan for his word. And, and even in our passage, look at the good fruit that's produced by the Jews' rejection of his word. Verse 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. So God uses the Jewish rejection of the gospel, what on the face of it seems like a bad thing, to produce immediate fruit here. Fruit of conversions to Christ. And the fruit of the word continuing to spread out throughout the whole region. So, so trust God's plan for the word. Now, now, trusting God should take many practical forms. So we're going to close by seeing three attributes of his plan for the word. Three more particular things our passage points out. And then what our response should be to those attributes of God's plan for the word. And these three things are under that last point in the outline, if it's helpful to look there. So what is God's plan like for the word? Well, first, it's, it's gracious. We see that in our passage. God's plan for his word is gracious. And it's gracious on an individual level. So, so when these Gentiles become Christians in verse 48, look at how we're told that happens. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life, believed. So as many as were appointed to eternal life, believed. Why did they believe? Because they were appointed to eternal life. Who appointed them? The Lord. God appointed them to eternal life. This is the biblical doctrine of predestination, or it's called election in certain places in the Bible. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. That's what we see happening here. God appointed them to eternal life. Now, now why had he chosen these particular Gentiles for salvation? Was it because he knew they'd be particularly smart or particularly humble or particularly gifted? Of course not, right? Of course not. No, he chose them for the same reason he chose you as a Christian. He, he did it, Ephesians 1 says, because of his glorious grace. Or as 1 Peter 1 says, he did it according to his great mercy. If you're here and you're a Christian, God didn't choose you because of anything in you, but only because of something in him. He's merciful. He's gracious. God's plan for his word is gracious. But see, it's also gracious on a more corporate level. So our, our passage makes it clear God's far too gracious to only save one ethnicity. We oftentimes don't think about that. He could have just saved Israel. That could have been the only people he worked with, and he would have been just and right to do it. He's far too gracious for that. So in Isaiah 49, the passage that Robin read earlier, Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6, this is what it says. It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. So he's saying, okay, I'm going to use you to bring back part of Israel, but that's too light of a thing for God. That's not gracious enough. Isn't that incredible? It's not gracious enough for him to just save this one kind of person. You know, his grace pours over into the rest of the world too. It's exactly what we're told in Revelation chapter 5, verse 9. Remember, the angels are celebrating the Lord in this vision of heaven. And they say, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from 
not just Israel. You ransom people for God from every tribe and every language and every people and every nation. So God's plan for his word is gracious. And, and unless you're in here and you're ethnically Jewish, this gracious part of God's plan affects you specifically. If he had only stuck with Israel, most of us would not know the Lord. Almost certainly we wouldn't know the Lord. The, the gospel would have saved folks in that nation, but it, but it wouldn't have saved you. No, God's plan for his word is gracious. And so here's the practical response. Rejoice. Rejoice. Verse 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. Well, the next thing we see God's plan for his word is not just gracious. It's Jesus-centered. It's Jesus-centered. So in verse 47, Paul and Barnabas, they're, they're applying the command to be a light to the Gentiles. They're, they're applying that to the church of Jesus Christ. We should be lights to non-believers. But see, we, we can only be a light to the Gentiles because somebody else went before us to be the light to the Gentiles. You might remember the story from Luke's gospel, but there's a guy named Simeon who's in the temple and the Holy Spirit had told him, before you die, you're gonna get to see the Savior. You're gonna get to lay eyes on the one who God will use to bring people to him and pay for their sins. And in Luke 2, Simeon, that guy, he quotes part of the same passage from Isaiah 49. This is Luke chapter two, verse 29. Simeon says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for the revelation to the Gentiles. And you probably remember who he's talking about. He's talking about the baby Jesus. And he quotes this passage from Isaiah saying, Jesus is the light for the Gentiles. Acts chapter 26, verse 23 explains how this is. The Christ had to suffer, and by being the first to rise from the dead, he proclaims light both to our people and to the Gentiles. So Jesus is the light. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, you don't know what you think about Jesus, this is how Jesus is held out as a light for you. He came to suffer and die in your place if you'll accept it. And to pay for all of your sins, past, present, and future, so that you can be brought close to God. He can become your father. You've made him your enemy, as all of us did, by sinning and turning from him. Christ makes a way for our sins to be forgiven so he can become our father. And that happens through trust alone in Christ alone. That's the gospel. That's the good news of Christianity. And, and if you'd like to hear more about that, the way to trust in Christ alone and have your sins forgiven and have eternal life Talk to me after the service. Grab a member of this church to hear more about the gospel. But, but the point we're thinking about here is just like every other passage of scripture, the hero of this passage is Jesus, right? So, so we get to serve as the lowercase l lights to the world, but only because he's the capital L light of the world. He's the one that we're really taking to people. Just like Paul and Barnabas did, but they can only do it because Jesus is, is the light. He's the word, like John 1 calls him. It's, it's Jesus-centered, God's plan for the word is. And the application here is simple. Worship Jesus. That's the application. As, as a Christian, he's saved you out of darkness and sin and death. He's rescued you. He continues to sustain you. God's plan for the word is Jesus-centered, therefore worship Jesus. But, but finally, God's plan for the word is certain. The final thing we'll see. God's plan for the word is certain, meaning nobody can mess it up. 
And that's why at the end of our passage, Paul and Barnabas respond the way they do to the Jews' rejection of the gospel. Verse 50, but the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they, Paul and Barnabas, shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So the Jews run Paul and Barnabas out of, out of town, right? These ministers of the gospel. And then Paul and Barnabas shake the dust off their feet. Now that's not a custom that we have in our culture, but from the context, you can probably put it together what's happening here. To shake the dust off your feet, that's to register your complete opposition to somebody. That's what it means to shake the dust off your feet in this culture, in the ancient Near East. So, so the person leaving was saying, I so disagree with what, with what just happened in this place that I don't want any part of you guys to come with me. Not even the dirt from your town that's attached to my shoe. That's something, isn't it? So they shake off the dirt from their shoes. Pretty intense. Now we know Paul loved his fellow Jews. He loved them. Listen to Romans chapter 9 verse 2. Paul says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites. Okay, so Paul loves the Jews. So, so how can Paul respond the way he does in our passage when we consider how much love he has for them? Not only that, again, look at verse 52. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. This group of people that Paul loves, they're rejecting the gospel. So, so how are Paul and Barnabas sort of rejecting them in a way and, and moving on? How can they do that? How can they do it joyfully? Well, it's because they trust God's plan for his word. They trust God's plan for his word. Pa- Paul understood his job was to share the gospel with non-believers and to trust God with the effects. Paul knew he couldn't get into anybody's heart. All he can do is pitch the word out, the sower and the seeds, right? He had to trust God to do the work to open somebody's eyes and open their hearts The way verse 48 says it, he has to trust God to appoint somebody to eternal life. His job is just to give the gospel. You might remember, but but in Romans chapter 9, Paul's talking about God's sovereignty and salvation. So he chooses to save save some and, and not to save others. And Paul, he confronts the objection he knows everybody will have, which is, wait, that's unfair. That's unfair. Paul answers that response. This is Romans chapter 9, verse 19. Remember, this is the same Paul. He says, you will say to me then, why does God still find fault? In other words, how can he judge somebody when God's the one that didn't choose them? For who can resist his will? This is Paul's answer. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? So you see, when Paul preached the gospel to non-believers, he trusted God's plan for that word. He knew God knew what he was going to do with it. Paul didn't know, but that's not Paul's job. Paul's job is just to give the word. He knew God was in control. And see, that's why he could dust off his feet and move on. And you can do the same. And I can do the same. There are times when, when you've shared the gospel with your coworker and, and he or she has rejected it enough where it could be time to use that uh, time and energy elsewhere. Now, of course, that's why God gives you fellow church members and pastors is to have that conversation where you can say, here's the details. Here are the conversations I've had with this person. This is how long I've been talking to them about the gospel. This is what their rejection looks like. 
what do you think I should do? Do you think this is a situation where I move on? Do you think it's a situation where I just ramp down how often I'm mentioning the gospel? It's a good conversation to have in community with people that know you, that are actually on the ground. But sometimes it's a good idea, like they do here, to, to shake the dust from your feet. Now, now, there are relationships which, in God's word, are designed to be close relationships despite the circumstances. So, so maybe in some extreme circumstances, a, a Christian will have to shake the dust off their feet when it comes to one of their children or with their spouse. I, I think that's incredibly rare. I think that's incredibly rare just because God designs those relationships to be perpetual, to go on. But, but I think the application here is to see what's at the end of verse 52, where you can remain filled with joy, even when somebody you really care about is rejecting the gospel. We all have those people, people we love that we desperately want them to believe in Christ, right? And that hurts. There's no way around that, but we can still have joy because we know we can trust in God's plan for his word. It's certain. Therefore, take comfort. So God has a plan for his word, and, and because God's good and sovereign, we can trust in that plan for the word. So why would we ever not trust it? Why would we ever disregard that word? Why would we ever resist gathering to hear that word? Because God, God has a plan for his word, and it's a good plan.